Before we start, this episode contains some chat that might be triggering for some listeners. If that sounds like that could be you, do check the show notes for more details. Hello and welcome to the final episode in this series of Happy Place. We're rounding off the series with an absolute corker. I'm meeting Dr Alex George. I think health incorporates you know, a combination of mental and physical, and I don't think you can separate the two. You know, I use the analogy of a person who enjoys playing football. You know, if you have an injury, you hurt your ankle, you can't play football, you've got a physical problem, but it impacts because you're not able to do the things you enjoy in life. It impacts your, your mental health, and I see plenty of patients out there who have physical health conditions, and it causes a mental health problem because they're not able to live their life or experience life in the way that they believe they should. I've long believed in the very real connection between mental and physical health and how one can directly inform the other. But it was really interesting to hear more about how and why that might be the case from A&E doctor and now youth mental health ambassador to the government, Alex George. He's written his first book, Live Well Every Day, which is out on the 13th of May. And this chat is packed full of practical tips to help you do just that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And now here's the show. Alex, are you good? Are you well? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that we're getting to chat. We have lots and lots to discuss today. Let's start in a celebratory mood, celebrating your book that's going to come out, Live Well Every Day, um, which couldn't have come at a better time, really, because I guess, you know, the last 12 months, we've all had to really focus on our mental and physical health more than ever. But also, I think, you know, there's a lot of fear around people going to the doctors at the moment people feel worried to book in with their GP or to go to A&E people are a bit worried so it's so good looking through your book at all the practical tips as to how we can keep a check on ourselves mentally and physically it's needed because that fear is quite strong in people yeah I think um, I think more and more as years have gone on and particularly with what's happened with Covid people are very much aware of their own health whether that's mental or physical health and people want to take control of of that and do the most that they can to look after themselves and I hope you know I sat down and started writing this book I kind of thought about some of the things that I've done to you know look after myself you know in the way that I, I am and I think when you look at health there's lots of different aspects from kind of sexual health to physical health to what you eat to what you know your sleep habits to your stress and how you deal with stress to your relationships to your social media and all those little parts and sections build up and make a difference to how you ultimately feel and how happy you are so I really wanted to look at those different sections and try and put together some tips some advice as well as the science the kind of evidence that's behind it so that people can go do you know what that's something I can probably take away from this book and it might make me feel a bit better yeah I mean it's it's so practical there's some brilliant advice in there and ways that we can keep keep tabs on all of this stuff but you do throughout the book encourage people to go to the doctors if they do feel worried so what would you say to someone at the moment if they're fearing that it might be too busy at their local doctors or they or they won't get in what what would you say to people who have got that sort of worry at the moment yeah this has been a big aspect of the book really for me it's like trying to combat I guess um, health stigma in general people being worried like is my problem valid like is it worth the doctor's time should I go and see the doctor about it or is you know there's people worry so much I think about actually accessing the NHS service and, and, and getting help and I always say to people I'd much rather see you as a doctor when it's a small problem than see it see you later down the line when it's a bigger problem and it's more difficult to fix and if you are worried about your health whether that's mental health or your physical health please do go and see your doctor go and see your GP you know, work on things before they become big problems. I, I reflect back to when I was at medical school and I lost my way a bit, actually, I think. I was in the fourth year of my med school. I was down in Truro on placement, which is sunny, beautiful part of the world in Cornwall. 
but I became quite lost and I stopped exercising. I didn't really sleep or eat well. I wasn't really seeing any of my friends. I didn't get outside much. I lost interest in my exams and I really was going to a place where I was probably feeling quite depressed. And at that point, what I should have done is spoken to the med school, gone to see my GP, but I thought, I don't want to trouble anyone. You know, I'm supposed to be a doctor soon. I should be able to look after myself. And I didn't, I didn't seek any kind of support. And I left it so, so long until the point where I felt really, really bad. Picked up the phone to my mum, actually, <laughs> often the best source of support, and said, look, I, I feel really bad. And everything kind of came out and there was lots of talking and me kind of being upset and, and this and that. But we... She said, look, you know, you've, you've shared the problem now. It's a problem, problem shared is a problem halved and let's work on these things. And actually, you know, she said, well, you know, are you exercising anymore? Are you sleeping? Are you, you know, are you doing the things that kind of would make you feel better? And I really tried to incorporate those things back in my life. I started going out for a walk every day to get fresh air, started exercising again, started cooking myself some of my food. I thought about my sleep timing. Well, you know, am I staying up ridiculously late? Shall I have a better routine? But very importantly, it made me realise that actually reaching out and going to get support when you need it is so important. And when I look back now, years down the line, I think, why didn't I go and see my GP? Why didn't I go and speak to the university and let them know and, you know, fix the problem sooner rather than leave it so much longer before it's, it's addressed? I think we all do it, don't we? We're maybe sometimes we're scared. We're scared that there's going to be some horrific outcome. But also, like you say, we go, "Oh no, I'll, I'll be all right. I won't. I won't bother or trouble anybody." And that we really need to sort of get over that and just get help. And and maybe do the first thing, like you, you know, talk to someone you love and and that you know is going to be supportive of you and and help you reach out to a professional or take that next step. It's so important. And also. What's so apparent in your book and of paramount importance is this connection between our mental and physical health. And again and again, we think they're these two separate entities wandering around. We've got poor mental health. We've got poor physical health. And of course, one affects the other. They're all one thing, essentially. And like you've just demonstrated there in that anecdote of when you were at med school, you know, you felt depressed, but most of that was brought on due to you know, physically you weren't sleeping well, you weren't exercising, you weren't eating very well. And I think so often we assume that, you know, poor mental health, not not maybe mental illness, but poor mental health is down to circumstance. Like, oh, I got dumped or, you know, my I don't like my job. We, we assume that it's stuff like that. That can, of course, impact it, but we've got to get the fundamentals right, those foundations that are going to help us out mentally and physically and that's what you work through in the book it's so important and i think you've hit the nail on the head there first of all with the idea of health i think health incorporates a combination of mental and physical and i don't think you can separate the two you know i use the analogy of a person who enjoys playing football if you have an injury you hurt your ankle you can't play football you've got a physical problem but it impacts because you're not able to do the things you enjoy in life it impacts your, your mental health. And I see plenty of patients out there who have physical health conditions and it causes a mental health problem because they're not able to live their life or experience life in the way that they believe they should. Likewise, I see plenty of patients with mental health conditions and problems or you know, even just not feeling themselves and their physical health suffers because they're not sleeping well, their blood pressure's higher, they might be eating you know, not as well as they were and they're you know, developing diabetes. So the two are so connected and we know, I mean, if you look at, if you look at exercise, for example, you go for a run, you know, you by going out and exercising, you're increasing blood flow to your brain. Increased blood flow to your brain is great for concentration, it's great for mood, you release endorphins, which are kind of happy hormones. And, and, and it's, it's such a benefit, you can't separate that benefit. You know, if you're feeling happier and healthier, your stress levels are lower, your blood pressure is better, you're less likely to have develop issues with, you know, with, with, with diabetes, etc. It's all kind of, kind of connected. And that's what I'd like to change moving forward, you know, in terms of the way we look at health. And, and we think of it all as one connected thing. And what's good for one aspect will probably have a knock-on benefit to another. I mean, take, for example, gut health. We know that now much more than, than ever that, you know, the, the, your gut and your brain are connected. We talk about the gut-brain axis, and there's a lot more research that needs to be obviously done within this. But there's a good body of, of suggestion that actually what you eat really does impact the way that you feel. You know, the gut's microbiome plays a role in developing those amino acids that play part of uh, the development of serotonin, one of our mood hormones. So if we're trashing our gut and we're, we're not looking after that, those lovely gut bacteria that we have, it's not really a surprise to think that that will have a knock-on impact on the way that we feel. It's, it's amazing. And I think it's an exciting part of, of science. And I, I really, 
I'm really excited that medicine's changing, that we are thinking less sometimes about just the end-stage diagnosis, the end-stage you know, diseases. We're thinking about, you know, let's take control of our own health. What can I do as an individual to feel better? Well, also, you're, I, I guess now there is a more sort of holistic look at how we deal with you know, staying healthy and looking at prevention because I'm sure that in your years of experience as a doctor, you've had so many patients come with a physical ailment that is purely related to stress, whether it's migraines or it could be IBS or whatever. But I think a lot of the time still we believe that, oh, that's just bad luck that I've got that or whatever. But sometimes it can it can be the root cause is stress and we need to help reduce that in life. And the modern world is a stressful place to live in. Absolutely. If you look at the way modern life is kind of lived, we spend a lot of time on our phones. We're much more yeah. sedentary than we've ever been. We've spent much more time inside than we've ever we've ever done. We live a lot of our lives ordering takeaways and, you know, fast, achievable ways of getting, you know, I can order a food is to my door in, in five minutes. And, you know, we're sleeping less than we ever have. I mean, all of these things are just like stealing little parts of our health away and making us ultimately more, more vulnerable. I mean, if you look at your immune system, if you have, it is well understood that if you are incredibly stressed and you have poor sleep, your immune system is hugely impacted. It makes a massive difference. You know, our body's natural defense and ability to, to fight infection. Yeah. Um, you know, it, there's, there's so much evidence out there. For, for example, if you're sedentary, you know, you might have a normal BMI and be seen as inverted commas, normal weight. But if you're sedentary, your risk of cardiovascular disease is, is hugely increased, even if you compare to those who, inverted commas again, are slightly overweight. If they are active and eat well, they may well be at lower risk of heart disease. So it, it's very interesting. You know, I think as, in modern society, we need to get up and move more, be on our phones less, and think more, I think, about our well-being and our general happiness than maybe financial means or you know trying to I think there's so much pressure particularly on young people to achieve so much and academically and you must go and get the best best job again inverted commas and achieve all these things but actually isn't life about being happy and healthy ultimately of course well look there's no guarantees of any of that stuff Mm. you know obviously achieving things and feeling like you've got purpose is going to be good for your mental health but it is if it's purely to get to an end goal where you are renowned and people love you and it's all about money or whatever then there's no guarantees you're going to feel happy we know that because we've seen so many people reach the top of their game and profess that they're absolutely miserable but when we're looking at those basics and decent sleep decent diet doing a bit of exercise it is guaranteed that you're going to feel better. Like there's not, you will feel mentally and physically better if you stick to those basics and just try and sort of ignore all of the quick fixes that might be advertised or put out there that, you know, do this and you're going to feel better. It's just like you say in your book, it's the basic, the fundamentals to feeling physically and mentally better. They're like anchors. And, and, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm an avid listener of your podcast and I've listened to it since, since this kind of inception, I guess. And, and you talk very openly about this. And I know you've talked pre- previously about pressure, expectation and feeling that you must be this certain person and, and be a certain way. And I, I think that's a big part of life as well. Like people were expected, I think partly, I think of it's a lot, a lot of it's social media, but we're expected to be a certain way and we're all very different. And, and I think, you know, the idea of like introvert versus extrovert and you know, how you want to spend your time is important. I think a lot of stress per se is when people are put in situations for a prolonged period of time that they don't actually want to be in uh, and, and it's not them. Mm, I agree. It makes a difference, doesn't it? I know you've spoken a lot about this kind of concept before. Yeah, because I think, Alex, what we do is we all, and we are all, you know, I don't know if the word is guilty of doing this, but we all certainly create our own identity throughout our formative years and then certainly as adults we go, right, I am out of my friendship group and my family. I'm the responsible one or I'm the, you know, the party animal who likes to G everybody up and make everyone feel happy. Or I am the quiet one who stays on the sidelines and doesn't get involved in family dynamics. You know, we create this identity of who we are in different situations, work, family, friendship groups. And we forget that that that's not set in stone. That isn't the essence of who we are. We can change that. And I think that's what takes away that pressure we don't have to stick to the story we've told ourselves of who we are we can change that whenever we want and that's actually quite exciting that's quite a exciting curious thing to look at well maybe I could 
try a different angle in life today at work or whatever it is. You know, it's all up for grabs. Um, There's so much more to congratulate you on. Another thing is, obviously, recently you were appointed by Boris Johnson, the young mental health ambassador, which is so, so exciting. And I know that you've got huge plans and you've done an immense amount of campaigning and research into this prior to getting the role. So what exactly does the role entail first up? So, so basically, I, I've kind of, since I came off Love Island years ago, I really wanted to use the platform in a way that I highlighted certain issues that affected young people. And one of those, certainly, that, that I was very concerned about is, is mental health and well-being and how I feel that there's certainly an imbalance when you go to school and then you're going through the school system. It's very much academically focused. And actually, a lot of the things around teaching yourself to how, teaching children how to look after themselves and self-care, a lot of that stuff isn't isn't there and I look back at school and I never really learnt a lot of those skills and in fact they're some of the most important things that you could possibly learn and I thought well you know we need to do more around this we need to kind of bring well-being and mental health more to the kind of forefront and I also really felt that we still have a huge amount of stigma for those who are struggling so on the other end of the spectrum if you're if you're in need of help and you want to reach out there's a lot of people that felt that kind of stigma so I've been working with Samaritans and the other charities for a few years and obviously the pandemic hit and we saw what happened in terms of mental health. The impact was absolutely massive. I I don't know anyone that hasn't had any effect or felt any sadness or bad feeling or change since the pandemic. Now, obviously in the summer, my brother took his life, which was very unexpected. There was no warning. We didn't know. We didn't know that he felt that way. And, you know, he's a young man. He was going to university to study medicine at Southampton. He had the whole world ahead of him, it would seem. But he suffered in silence and he never asked or reached out for help. And for me, it was such a shock. And obviously, as someone that was, you know, spoken a lot in this area over the last few years, it was very, very hard to accept. But I, what I felt was I need to do something about this. I need to try and bring some change and, and make some headway in this space so that young people can reach out when they want help, but they also have an understanding of how to take care of themselves. So I launched the campaign after spending a good few months with a lot of the charities and organisations, finding out a lot of the problems, basically, and the areas that need improvement. Uh, I didn't really expect when I launched it in January that I'd end up in the Prime Minister's uh, house a few weeks later taking on that role. But really, you know, this role as Youth Mental Health Ambassador, it's not about me being an expert. I'm not an expert in mental health. I'm not a professor of psychiatry. I'm not a psychologist. I, you know, that, that is not my expertise. I'm there to shine a light and bring attention and beat that drum for mental health so that when policy decisions are made when we're talking about young people and decisions around young people, that mental health is right up there with the other things that are considered, that it's seen with the importance that it, that it, that it deserves. So, you know, that, my real role is shining that light on it. And it's working on stigma as well. It's not about just about getting funding. Obviously, I'm working a lot on, you know, trying to get money as a big part of what, why I'm there. But it's also about breaking stigma down. I've been making videos that have been out to schools around self-care. I've got campaigns coming around social media and how to stay safe online. And I just want to, I hope, break down a lot of those barriers so that, you know, anyone else out there that felt like clear, who felt that life wasn't worth living anymore, that they would give that, give people around them the chance to help, that they would reach out, you know, because there's far too many people like him uh, who sadly suffer in silence and the stigma is still there. We're making progress, but there is still stigma around mental health. And that is what I want to change. Yeah, I'm I'm so, so sorry for your loss and for your family. Uh, you know, when I when I heard the news, I was just devastated for you guys. And, you know, I can't imagine what that what that was like for you all, having that shock element as well. You know, like you say, not having, you know, any inkling that that was on the horizon and that, that he was suffering. And that's why the work that you're doing is so important. And most game-changing work, it often comes from a place of pain, doesn't it? You know, you're so driven because you don't want other people to have to experience that and to not feel like they can speak out. Because I think we still know that male suicide rates are, there's such disparity between female and male suicide rates. And and a lot of it is down to the fact that men, young boys, don't feel that there is space for them to speak aloud and say, I'm struggling, I'm not coping well. It's still seen as not the done thing. You've got to be stoic, you've got to troop on, you've got to you know, be with the lads, whatever. And that sounds like a sweeping generalisation, but I think the stats would still depict that that's the case, right? 
you know, there's so much societal and cultural expectation on what a man should be and uh, and what that looks like, yeah. uh, and that ultimately still is such an issue for when young men or men want to to reach out. And the big thing I want to do is to change that. Is that when children grow up in school, when they start, you know, three or four years old at school, that we encourage them to talk about thoughts and feelings to understand what thoughts and feelings really mean. What is a thought? What's a feeling? What do you do with with this kind of thing that's in my head? So that as they grow up, as they go through school, they normalise and find it completely normal to sit down and talk about uh, mental health. And, and a lot of people, I think, think when I'm saying that, it's about feeling, talking about, oh, I'm feeling sad or this or this or that. A lot of it's around a real positive sense around mental health. So the, you know, how we can build resilience, you know, what we can do to, you know, because ultimately you can't remove life's obstacles, right? COVID, a prime example. What, how could we stop that? You know, but it's how we deal with life's challenges. So really we're, we're building children that are more resilient if we, if, if we do that. And it's a gradual thing. You know, I'm not suggesting that young children were talking about, you know, extreme forms of depression, etc. It doesn't need to be that negative thing. It can just no, be... A, it's planting the seed at a young age, isn't it? Building building children up. I mean, I, I had thought it was a fantastic idea that I'd heard um, a couple of months ago, and I think it's absolutely amazing. A prime example of how you could do this at home, you know, really, and incorporating this. It's called a traffic light system. So you've got uh, a green, amber, and, and red, obviously. Green, you know, you feel great. Amber, so-so. Red, not good at all. So if you were a family sat around the dinner table, for example, you could sit around the dinner table and one parent might say, right, well, we're going to talk about, you know, we're going to do our quick traffic light system today. Uh, I'm feeling amber. Work's been pretty stressful, but the weekend's coming, so I don't feel too bad, but I'm not my best. Next parent might say, you know, I'm feeling green today. Things are great at work. And you go around the table with the children as well, of whatever age, and it's very easy to do because it's just three colours. And they say which one they are, and they say a little bit why. And if you do this every day, a lot of the days it might be a really quick thing. It goes around the table, but you make it so comfortable and normal and part of routine that if someone goes around the table and goes, actually, mum, to be honest, I feel very red today, my homework's late, or I didn't do bad at my test, I feel really bad. It allows that family unit to recognise that person feels bad yeah. and to support them. And the more you do it, the more comfortable everyone will be with it. So it's that, it's that principle in school as well. If you just go, all of a sudden you expect you to speak about mental health at the age of 15, it's so many years of, of undoing that you have to do at that point. Whereas if it's normal for them, they will talk about it. And they will, it's like when, um, you know, when they started talking about envi- the environment, they said, oh, children won't do recycling. You know, kids, they don't care about that kind of stuff. That's rubbish. Usually it's the children coming home, six-year-olds coming home, telling mum and dad they need to recycle. Without doubt. It's, so they learn. Yeah, without doubt. It's normalising it. It's normalising it. And it's more important than ever because we're seeing so many teens struggling and lots of statistics stating that, you know, many sad things are on the rise, much like, you know, obviously anxiety, depression, self-harm, eating disorders, they're on the rise. So, you know, planting the seeds early in kids, like you say, normalises it so that when they're at those sort of formative years, going through sort of, you know, young adulthood, it, it's a conversation that is sort of, you know, there's a free-flowing dialogue. It's I'm, I'm so chuffed that you're doing that important work and it's um, there's a lot of work to be done, but you're, you're definitely shining a light on all the right areas. So congratulations on all of that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, of course, in the book, you, you talk about, well, it's the, the reason why the book is, is so brilliant as well is because you have collated not only all the learnings and stats and info from your studying and your job as a doctor, but also loads of self-experience stuff in there. So, you know, your own life experience married with all the stats, which I think is a really powerful combination. And of course, you talk about Love Island and you didn't initially seek to be on Love Island. You were approached and you were dubious at first, but then I know you had this kind of 
you know, moment, this epiphany of I've got to do it because your late friend Freya had had said something quite profound to you and, and that impacted you in, in a way when you were making that decision, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually, when they approached, I thought I thought it was a prank, first of all. I thought some of my mates are winding me up to having <laughs> me on here. You know, I'm, I'm not the kind of 200 followers on Instagram, I think less than that. I'm not that kind of, I'm a very introverted person. I, I really was like, this is a joke. And actually, I, first of all, I kind of thought, no way. And, and, and I spoke to some of my consultants at work about it and they said, well, you know, why not? Like, why why can't you do that? And it, I was coming and harring and I thought about what my friend Freya said, who was a very good friend of mine. She was at, we were at university together at medical school and she sadly was diagnosed with leukaemia, had a very long battle, had bone marrow transplant, was just such an inspiration. But sadly, she passed away and very recent or very close to the day or in the days before she passed away, I sat with her and said goodbye. And it was very, I remember as if it was yesterday, it was very, very strange it's a very strange feeling sitting down, speaking to someone, knowing it's the last time you're ever going to speak, especially when they're a very big part of your life. Such an odd situation to, to be in. But she, and, I, and I said to her, you know, what can you say to someone in that situation? I said, you know, I'm going to really miss you. And, you know, I'll, you know, I want to try and live life and try and make the most of life. And, you know, and all that kind of thing is a very awkward thing to say, really. And she said, listen to me and listen to this. You know, I'm here now and my life is ending, you know, and I'm devastated because about that because my life was really starting and when I'm sat here now knowing that I'm going to die the most important thing I want to say to you is to go out and live your life say yes to things take life's opportunities don't regret the things you didn't do go and live you know if someone says come out do you want to go for that walk or do you want to go should we go on that holiday or you know, there's a there's something out there even that scares you do it, do it. You know, don't be afraid of challenges because she knows me she knows I'm an introvert and she's like don't be afraid of challenges because before I'd have shied away so when they approached me I thought what would Freya say and I did it well, I think it's the best advice any of us can take on. You know, we can take Freya's advice and we all need to run with that because I think so often we go, no, 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 it's not It's not for me. I don't want to, I, I can't put myself in that situation or I'm too scared or whatever. And, you know, for you, this has led to a completely game-changing situation, you know, because now you do have this amazing platform where you can do all this brilliant work that you're doing. But obviously before that, you were in the villa and you were doing your thing and I know in the run-up again you talk about this in the food and exercise section of the book you put yourself on a sort of rigorous diet and workout regime prior to going into Love Island because again there's that expectation that you're going to look a certain way and you got the six-pack you were shredded ripped all that <laughs> stuff but you you didn't feel great right? I actually think what I did to myself before going on the show was I would actually say it was very unhealthy for me for me personally I I had something like 20 weeks before the show and I felt very self-conscious because I'd been working really hard it just come out of a winter in A&E which is really tough um, probably not eating you know perfectly but I was you know generally pretty fit and healthy I enjoyed cycling I was quite a comfortable weight uh, but I wasn't what I mean I, wa- I wasn't in that kind of six-pack like you know get your top off like perfect shape and I felt oh gosh I'm going on tv I'm going to be judged I saw what the other contestants looked like in previous years and I thought I, ca- I need to do something I need to get in shape and what happened that 20 weeks was that I basically restricted my life I, in every possible way. I restricted my diet. I removed almost everything from my diet apart from very basic components that would get me lean and lose weight. I exercised excessively. I mean, you know, I was gymming some days. I was cycling an hour, then I was gymming an hour, which was an unhealthy amount to exercise every day. I actually stopped seeing any of my friends because I thought if I see my friends, if I eat one chocolate bar while I'm with them or have a full fat cappuccino when I'm with them or I have a pint of beer, that's going to set me back. So I removed myself from all my social groups. I only worked and I trained. And yes, I did, you know, look aesthetically quite good in that time. But was it worth it? Absolutely not. Did I feel healthy? Absolutely not. I felt like I was a recluse. I'd lost contact with my friends. I'd had an unhealthy relationship. I was developing with food and and exercise. And really, I thought, what am I... I went went on the show and I, I thought, you know, what am I doing? I might look, invert commas, good, but I didn't feel good. And, you know, I, and when I came off the show, I thought, I cannot do this. And I, mm. I changed the way that I approached things. Like, no, I'm not in that shape now. But I, I, I exercise most, you know, I'd say every other day I do reasonable workout, but I do go out for walks every day. I eat quite a balanced diet and I feel much healthier. Like, I felt really unhealthy then. It's very powerful you saying this because 
I think if we take Instagram as a sort of framework to look at, which, you know, most of us will have access to or be aware of, even if we're not on it, we can see lots of people looking amazing, you know, with a certain body type or whatever's going on. And we think, oh, my God, they're so lucky or they're this or they're that. And you're clearly saying there, you know, you looked in inverted commas, in the best shape of your life. But mentally, you felt awful and you weren't connected with other people. The things that do guarantee joy, you know, speaking to friends, going out, doing something spontaneous, fun, joy, 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 looking a certain way, it's kind of a empty promise. There's nothing really to it, apart from you might look wicked in an Instagram picture. Or in this case, you were going on national TV. So there's a, you know, insurmountable amount of pressure on you to, to sort of fit into... Because the thing is, you know, I I say this with with zero judgment because I don't think any judgmental thinking is helpful whatsoever. I say this with curiosity and I guess a sort of an interest in your opinion on it having been on the show. Obviously, you know, Love Island has brought so much joy to loads of people, escapism. It's been really interesting to look at relationship dynamics and, you know, human behaviour. But there is, of course, the other side of it, which is that aesthetic that we've become so used to. You know, it's normalised to see very beautiful, toned shiny, unblemished, unhairy. There's no hair anywhere. Unhairy, <laughs> gorgeous <laughs> humans. There's no hair to be seen. Um, a lot of and waxing it's, going that's on. Become, you know, a lot of waxing going on. That's become very normal, but also very aspirational for, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people. That will be their marker of what they're aiming for or what they believe will then feel like completion or like I've made it. I I look that way. How, how detrimental do you think that is to you know young people growing up sort of seeing that on tv i think it can be i I think it could be very detrimental because we if you look at the way humans are supposed to be i mean you know everyone's different and we all for for genetic reasons and and everything we all look different but most people aren't meant to be sub 10 percent body fat with you know not a an inch or pound of, of fat on their abs or whatever it's it's just not really what what most people look like or are like it's you're creating almost a an aspiration of something that's not actually achievable in a sustained way I mean, and then what the way i justify that is that think of what i had to do to look like that and i had to make i had to make myself lonely i had to restrict my i mean i my diet was different proportions of brown rice broccoli plus or minus a few vegetables and meat that was the variation in my diet. Awful, awful. So I had to, I had to restrict my life in all kinds of ways just to look like that and maintain that shape. So was I living? I wasn't living. It is not worth doing that to yourself, psychologically, mentally, or physically, to look in that in that way. And I think we need to be very careful about what we show on social media and also on TV. And actually, I think and I hope that Love Island and I believe they are working on you know body image importantly and thinking about representing people in life that are, that are in inverted commas normal you're normal people out there you know and, and the good thing I guess the year I was on there Jack Fincham won and um, he's a good friend of mine he won't mind me saying this but he wasn't there with ripped abs and everything he was just a very normal guy and he won the show which I think was brilliant it was absolutely brilliant and I hope that reality tv that shows in future value more the person and personality that's going on that show rather than the aesthetic and whether they've got a six-pack or not because ultimately that isn't what matters in life. And, and and again, I go back to that point. Was I happier with a six-pack or as I am now with a balanced life that I, you know, okay, fine, I'm not able to see my friends in quite the same way. But comparing it to the times when I was able to see, see my friends and family, I would say I'm much happier, you know, and not having that six-pack, you know, to me was a better way of life. Absolutely. You're having a nice time. You're having fun. I mean, if you were to go into Love Island now, would you do things differently? Or do you think there would still be that pressure that you, that you had to sort of fit in and, uh, you know, for the public to react to what they deem as normal on the show? Do I think there'd still be pressure? Yes. Would I do things differently? Definitely. Mm. I think if I went on the show now, I, you know, yes, I'm not saying I'd be really silly and like I'd sit here and eat, you know, terrible food, junk food and put a load of weight on to go in. But I certainly wouldn't do what I did again. I, I would yeah. now happily go in without a six-pack. I seriously mean that. I mean, I've posted images on my 
Instagram of me just on a beach, just like just as I am now, and like I don't feel the pressure. I feel like there is an expectation of people, but I don't feel the same way. I think we all have a role, and special, and everyone, not just not just those with big platforms. Because if you think about it, you might have a friend who looks unbelievable and always posts the perfect edited pictures with their waist pulled in, mm-hmm. and that might make you feel bad. So I think it's everyone's role when you're putting content out there about a how authentic that content really is. Is that really what you look like, or has it been massively? edited and altered uh, and secondly I think particularly for those who are inverted commas again influencers to think about what they're putting out there and what impact that might have on young people because I'd much rather young people be inspired by someone that is doing something they're really interested in hobbies that they have or passions that they have rather than being made to feel bad by someone who has you know uh, you know uh, again a, a body that is seen as, as publicly perfect but actually probably isn't that achievable and probably isn't always that real either well quite exactly and and how did that level of examination scrutiny feel to you going from having as you said a a couple of hundred instagram followers to (laughs) quite literally a couple of months later coming out to having all eyes on you i mean what did that feel like you know i i understand what that scrutiny can feel like and it's not always lovely but i've very incrementally been able to get used to that and i still find it so so tricky to get my head around and to find peace with sometimes so what was that gear change like I find it interesting to hear you say that because I was going to ask you what how it feels because you know you, I mean I've known I've been I've known you for well I've known you but I've been watching <laughs> you listening to you on the radio one days and all those kind of years ago and 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 I wondered what it was kind of like for you now because obviously you are you're really experienced at being uh, it's not normal is it it does I don't think it matters how you know I've been doing this for twenty five years I don't think it feels normal to have. Yeah people think they know about you because nobody knows the true picture ever you know we we barely even know our friends you know that intimately or understand them it's hard to really get to know uh, someone I don't think it ever feels normal or comfortable so I can't imagine for you what that is like because it feels pressurized to me every day still now like oh my god have I said something wrong have I upset someone is that is someone going to misinterpret that but you had that from you know, being a doctor, getting on with your business to the next thing, what's Alex up to? I'm going to be watching him. I think it's what's what's very odd is that I, I could not have had a more polar switch of my life because, you know, I was working in London in a busy A&E hospital, but loving my job, quite happy in my group of friends, quite happy in my life, to be honest. I was pretty happy, to be honest. And I went from that for nine weeks to the day from my phone being taken off me with a couple hundred followers and my life kind of set in a certain direction to over a million and it going in a completely opposite direction. And one thing I found did find difficult is that everyone around me, everyone in that villa that I was with, either were models or worked in social media or had platforms. I, I, everyone was laughing because they were like, I have 30,000, 40,000 followers. And I was like, I have, I think, 200. Um, and it was really, really weird to come out. And I think there was an added pressure that being a doctor as well, because I know at the time there was a lot of... Um, a lot of people are like, oh gosh, there's a doctor in there. You know, something very different for, for someone from my profession to do, which was really scary for me. When I came out, I was quite worried about what medics would think and and what the reaction would be. And I think there was a lot of question marks and some people didn't like it, etc. But that was tough. I think there was a lot of pressure. I think I've got used... I think I think what you said is, is absolutely true. And I've obviously only done it for... It's only going to be a couple of years. But I am always aware it's not normal. I'm just learning to manage that box. It's like a box that you learn. It's like there's you and there's that you. And I think I've learned to kind of manage that. But I, I do feel happier now with it all. I feel a bit more like I've got my purpose. I know the direction I'm going in and what I want to achieve. I also feel that probably, you know, doctors and stuff on the whole have, have now kind of accepted me mostly for, for who I am and what I'm doing. And I think the support has been really amazing. So, yeah, it, it's, it's certainly in those first six months, it was an absolute whirlwind. I didn't actually feel myself for about six months, I don't think. I was really lost. I bet. I was really lost. But now, you know, like you say, you're in that space where you can compartmentalise, right, this is me doing the stuff I want to do in my life and then that's me on social media and, and you can create that separation. But I wonder if there are times still, you know, because we're all collectively still getting used to how to integrate, how we communicate digitally, you know, into our everyday lives, whether it's, you know, just WhatsApping each other or whatever, or when it is Facebook, Instagram, you know, there's that enticing element of a like or the amount of followers and I wonder does that ever impact your self-worth or 
or how you sort of see your success or what you're achieving? Do you allow that to come into it or are you quite disciplined in going, right, that's just a game over here and this is the real deal? How, how do you work with it? I think I'm still learning. I think it's a learning process. I think it's learning for everyone because social media is evolving and changing almost week by week. I mean, it's to look at things like TikTok now and like it's, the, the game always changes and it's, very, it's a, a strange world, really. I think when I first came out on the show and had all this dopamine hit of all these likes and all these people saying things to you and all this, it, it, you could easily get sucked into that. And I think I did at the start. Now, I think a few years down the line, I think I have learned to separate much more. Like, I am very aware that, you know, these apps, Instagram, the way that these platforms are generated, they're generated so that when you get lots of likes, get lots of people commenting on things, it generates this dopamine hit, this kind of reward center in your brain that goes, this is fantastic. So I really separate from that. And what I do, actually, is I look at things and I go, no one's perfect in the world. You know, I think I'm a reasonably okay and reasonable good person, but no one's perfect. I've got good points and I've got bad points. Am I really bad in certain ways? No, I don't think I'm really bad. Am I really, really, really good and special? No, I don't think that either. So when people comment or they say things, if they, in either direction, are like, oh my God, you're incredible, I think that's very kind, but I moderate that thought and I don't buy into that. But I equally don't buy into it when people say that I'm this, that or the other or saying horrible things about me because I also think that's not true either. So I try and always think about what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to achieve and where I feel with that. Because look at the work I'm doing with the youth mental health. I mean, you know, because it blew up so massive and I think a lot of people were aware that it happened, you had people who were very, very, very supportive and the vast majority were in that middle space of being like, it's great, it's brilliant what we're doing, keep going. But then there was a percentage of people who were really horrible and like, you know, what are you doing there? You're not a professor in this, da 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 And I sat back and thought, I could take this on on myself and I could allow this to damage the way that I feel or I could be objective and look, actually, I'm doing something quite good on my platform. I feel happy with what I'm doing. I don't think that their opinions are fair and therefore I'm just not going to listen to it. And I've, I've not saying it. Sometimes things cut through and every now and then it's, on a, it's always on a bad day. I think you've said, you said this thing before. Of course. Before. It's on a bad on day. On the I'm shittiest the day, day, you're like, I'll have all of that, yeah, all of you, that abuse. Yeah, I'll I remember it. you saying yeah. this before and, and it is so true. You've had a bad day. You've kicked the milk over. You've dropped that. You're late for work. Your consultant's told you off for something. Uh, patients call you this or that. And then you see something on Twitter of someone saying something. And you're like, oh, you... And then it just catches you, yeah. doesn't it? In that moment, it just catches you. And it happens to everyone. But I do try and moderate myself and think, actually, I'm not too bad. I'm not too amazing either. I am just me and I'm not perfect. I'm doing my best like everyone else is in each day. And I, and I think that's why I'd like to encourage particularly young people as they grow up and just, you know, life isn't perfect. There's lots of challenges. You're never going to be a perfect person in, in, in any sense. And that is perfect in its own way like you are yeah. who you are and and don't let people drag you down in, in that sense because it's easy it easily happens no oh god look we're all we're human beings we're fallible we're going to make mistakes we're going to learn we're going to do things better next time we're going to mess up again you know it's there's no person out there who is going to get to the end of their life unscathed with out having made a mistake, a slip up, done something, for, you know, that came from a bad place. We're humans. We're not robots. We're humans. And I just we think... We all make mistakes. Yeah. And also anybody that says anything unkind about your new position, that's just because, well, quite frankly, they're feeling lacking in themselves. And it's, it says so much more about them than it does you. It's got really nothing to do with you. It just it demonstrates what they're, the pain they're feeling. The pain they're feeling is just spilling out into abuse to anyone. So you have to just go, that's their shit, let them have it. Now, I know on Instagram, prior to you getting this role, you, you, you put a statement out sort of saying to Boris Johnson, like, come on, we need to provide adequate mental health education for everybody, all kids out there that's going to prepare them for, uh, to, you know, go out into the world after school. And I wonder, you know, with all this in mind, everything we've just talked about, you know, how popular culture is demonstrated today, how we communicate digitally, how we're so programmed to get dopamine hits from likes and followers, etc. How do we prepare young people for such a world, which actually on paper looks quite toxic? Because, you know, if we took all that away and we stripped it back and, you know, like when I was growing up as a teenager, there obviously was no... There was I barely had a phone until I was about sixteen, I think. You know, there Nokia was the internet was, was just sort of Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this huge big bulky brick of a phone and the internet was just sort of creeping into existence. But 
I think the most of us, unless we had stuff circumstantially going on, had a pretty carefree existence. We just did what we wanted. We were making tons of mistakes and drinking in the park and whatever. And it did feel, I sound quite old saying this, but like a happier time versus what teenagers are dealing with today. So taking into account all of that sort of toxicity that we're dealing with, yes, this goes for adults too, but technology and how we're using it when we're using it in not a great way and social media and how we deem success these days and and the assumptions we have of everybody else how do we prepare young people for that yeah and it's there's a big that's a big big topic isn't it huge a few few points on that i think it's it's interesting like and i was thinking this the other day when i think about back to my childhood i think it's difficult because we always gen we generally look back on times with nostalgia and there's always like we always have a certain perception of i think of youth and growing up and what it would be and we're also we were also different people back then and i think the challenges were different when we were younger and i think this kind of new world that's coming in terms of social media has many challenges it has many positives i think it's good and important to say that as well i mean for example would i be able to do what i'm doing this role and try and bring mental health on the front foot without social media absolutely not would i be in this role absolutely not uh, if it wasn't for social media but it does bring a huge amount of its challenges and what i want to do what i would like to see is that when we look at an education system we look at bringing a child into the adult world who is well-rounded who has skills in academia but skills in life skills as well as understanding how to take care of themselves that kind of 360 individual is what we want and i feel that the education system at the moment focuses so heavily on academia on you know the priorities how many a levels you come out with or what university you go to you know do they teach you about what is a what's finance you know what's an isa what's a mortgage when you earn money where does that money go how what do you do with money you know how do you take care of yourself why is exercise actually important what does food actually do for you what are the damaging effects of poor sleep you know all these kind of things i want people to come out with that rounded approach and and i think it comes from a whole school approach it comes from for example a really good example of, of setting like the precedence of it if you look at how schools are evaluated with ofsted ofsted when it looks at a school prioritizes academia there's no yeah, doubt it's about great that. if you do one if you do one lecture a year on mental health you've ticked the box on yeah that, but you need to do so many box ticking for everything else and that what does that tell teachers it tells teachers the most important thing you can do is make them academically really good and i don't and teachers are an incredible and it's very important for me to say that i think teachers are awesome they've done an amazing job and what they've done this last year has blown my mind and they are amazing and i've the feedback i've had from teachers has that has been that they really want to do this they want to kind of have that shift because they feel that they you know you generally you want to see a child grow up you want them to be happy and healthy yeah, that's exactly. the most important thing so i think starting at school starting from a young age building a curriculum that covers a lot of this stuff because at the end of the day you can't get rid of social media it's not going anywhere so let's prepare kids for how to use it what is it for? How can you use it to benefit your life? Could it be used, you know, for education purposes? Is it for passion? You know, how can you use it in a positive way? What do you do with online trolling and bullying? How do we change the culture online? And all of that comes from education because ultimately it's a tool. It can be an amazing tool, whether it's for, for business, whether it's for your hobbies or passions. I mean, simple things. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of talks with universities and I get them to the students and things to get out their phones. And I say, go on your Instagram, look at your fo- the people you follow. How many people do you follow on your Instagram that actually make you feel bad? Yeah, loads. And loads them come back. So actually, 20 or 30% of the people I follow actually actively, actively make me feel bad when I see posts that they do. Unfollow them. Get, so get let's rid. teach children at school to think about how you create your social media. Because, I mean, you look at the statistics and look at the figures. People spend about three hours a day, four hours a day online. Bloody so hell. let's teach kids mm. how to use easily three or four hours so let's teach children as they grow up how to use that if you're going to be online for three or four hours let's have a safe space let's have a positive space let's have a productive space that's going to benefit you in the long run and that comes from education and it comes from graded education throughout school a whole school approach attitude to well-being from mental health to social media to all the other things and that is how i think we will better prepare young people for the real world for the adult world i think yeah i mean it's not going to happen anytime soon, is it? Because it's such a huge shift. We're still very much in a sort of Victorian schooling model, in a sense, where education is, you know, predominantly still, like you say, focusing on academia. And it's so interesting. You know, we know this has got to change because 
I'm pretty sure over 50% of the jobs that the young people today will be doing in 10, 20 years, those jobs don't even exist yet. So we can't prepare young people with education for those jobs because they don't exist because technology is moving at such a rate that we're still working from a system that just is preparing people to go into, you know, historically the jobs that our parents, our grandparents did. And that's going to include having to look at how we use technology, how we interact with others, having emotional intelligence. That's the big one for me emotional intelligence like reaching out to your friends asking if they're okay making eye contact with people all the things that are slowly kind of dying out like they're so important emotional intelligence is where it's at for work your well, life your happiness everything. everything in your life it's from it's from your workplace from your relation is it look at look at you know in a in a and e you know we we've got you know you look at an a and e department we're all in there as doctors nurses physios ot's reception staff assistants Everyone's got different skill sets and abilities, but what combines us as a, t- as a team is that emotional intelligence, that that feeling of belonging to one another, that we're in there together and we're helping each other, and that ability to be aware and be able to ask for help you need to. You know, I might see a patient and we're going to need for a few years. You know, I've got reasonable amount of experience, but then I might see a patient go, "Gosh, I really need help here," and I get the consultant involved and that ability to connect with that person and for us to work together. And ultimately, that's what actually matters: the teamwork and the communication skills and you know, we don't know what the jobs are going to be in the future. So let's prepare children for the hurdles of life and give them the tools they need to be able to adapt. Because if we just forget those things, they're not going to be able to adapt to, to new challenges and, and things as we move forward. But there are glimmers of hope. I mean, if you look at Wales, Wales has brought through their four purposes approach curriculum, which now actually puts the well-being as one of the purposes. It sits it alongside education and, and other aspects. So they're actually basically saying developing the well-being of this child and 360 degree view is as important as the other aspect yeah so we need to replicate that in this country i think in england i think we need to really work on that and bring it forward and, and like you said we're talking about victorian ages let's bring education up to the modern you know modern world because you look at look at scandinavia and other countries they they put well-being number one i know and then and but in, interestingly they achieve academically they have better attendance rates and they academically achieve better of course so what does that tell you happy and healthy children of course are more they successful. Are. they've got the they've got the capacity to do so because you know you, you again going back to the foundations the foundations are in place it's so so important and i'm so glad that you're at the helm of this and that you're making it happen i think it's truly exciting and and i'm buzzed to see how you do it and what you do next it's brilliant work dr alex george i love it thank you so much i love it and it's been um it's been such a joy talking to you today thank you for you know sharing so much and talking about such personal issues and and congratulations on your brilliant book as well no thank you and it's it's been an honor to be on this podcast you know I, i i i love happy place and you know you, what you do is amazing you create a space that um, people can talk very openly and I think it inspires a lot of people including myself over, over the series and things that you've done so thank you so much it's an honour right doctor's orders let's all get up and move around a bit whatever you're doing right now have a little wiggle get some more of that lovely movement in and thank you so much Alex for your time for sharing such personal stories and just being lovely Now, look, I said this is the final episode of this series of Happy Place, but we're not going to be away too long at all. In fact, I'll be back here next week. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so the first episode of the brand new Sparkly series arrives straight to your phone on Monday. Thank you so much to Alex, to the producers of this episode, Matt Hill and Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you lot. Thank you. I so appreciate you listening. And I'll see you really soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.